A content note before we begin. This episode includes references to bigoted ideas, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Welcome to part two of Schooling Bigotry, a limited series from Western State Center about the roles we can all play in defending democracy and confronting hate within our education system. I'm your co-host, Adrian Vandervalk, a senior fellow with Western State Center. And I'm Ray Page, a Defending Democracy Fellow with Western State Center. And I'm glad we're picking this conversation back up because we left it in a pretty bleak place last time. In this episode, we're going to get more hopeful and talk about different ways we can confront organized bigotry in all its forms. Ray, I was listening back to part one, our episode about why anti-democracy groups target schools, and something really struck me. Do you remember this part when we talked about what motivates the group Moms for Liberty? They may not have a white nationalist agenda, but their goals are definitely rooted in white supremacy and often bigotry. It's almost always a reaction to, for example, schools teaching about racial justice or LGBTQ issues. Oh, yeah, I do. Well, I was thinking about how this would sound to a parent who maybe didn't know a lot about these issues but had heard Moms for Liberty's rhetoric. And it made me wonder, would that parent accept the idea that this group's motivation was rooted in white supremacy and bigotry, especially if they weren't personally impacted by those things? And I think the answer is probably not. I'm glad you brought this up, because if we're going to talk about action, we need to talk about strategy and tactics. And one of the tactics Moms for Liberty uses very effectively is to craft very deliberate messaging. Often their rhetoric relies on vague but familiar language that purports to stand for something positive like defending parental rights and promoting liberty. Yeah, and it often co-opts certain terms that function as a kind of dog whistle to their base. For example, parents' rights groups might use the term liberty But in reality, they're seeking to limit rights and freedoms, not expand them. The point is, they're not leading with hate. They're promoting something that sounds honorable, but in a way they know will play on people's fears and biases. One example of a manufactured moral panic is the need to protect children from being sexualized or groomed, which co-ops anti-violence language often used by feminists and advocates in sexual violence prevention movements. But in this case, it's actually referencing kids being taught anything at all about LGBTQ identities or families. As we talked about in the last episode, right now trans kids and their supporters in particular are being scapegoated in this way. If we want to be effective in our organizing, we need to get curious and understand why anti-democracy groups use the tactics they use so we can be more strategic about how we support our students and protect our democracy. So that's our task in this episode. We're going to look at three different tactics and how we can strengthen our schools against them by exploring our spheres of influence. And we'll talk to some educators about specific ways they confront white nationalism and other anti-democracy organizing in the classroom, with colleagues, and at the institutional level. Okay, we've already introduced our first tactic, how anti-democracy groups use deceptively benevolent language to make it difficult for people to disagree with them 
or even put their finger on exactly why their goals are so dangerous. Right. I mean, how do you argue with a mission to protect kids? Well, one of the biggest lessons I have learned is not to argue with folks using their own language at all. Instead, I like to talk about what I believe and then dig deeper into the hidden meanings behind their narratives to bring their true goals to the surface. So let's talk about the sphere of influence where you could do that, where you'd have an opportunity to help break down these false narratives. So I'm picturing educators in a series of literal spheres, and the one closest to them would be the classroom, the personal interactions they have with students. Yes, talking to young people about these ideas when they pop up is so powerful for the kids who say them and the kids who hear them. And this is where having really authentic relationships with students makes a huge difference because kids are pretty much the masters at recognizing and rejecting hypocrisy. 100%. Students, especially adolescents, are developmentally attuned to the BS meter. If we have not earned their respect, they won't listen to us. But if we're prepared, we can leverage those relationships to help them see a different perspective. So to talk about the best way to do that, we spoke to Jessica Acey, one of the co-authors of the Confronting White Nationalism in Schools Toolkit. Nothing that we do or say means anything if we're not in an authentic relationship with our students and taking their identities and experiences seriously. If we don't have a, a set of norms or agreements in our classroom, if we haven't invested in some one-on-one -on -one interviews, some get to know you work, some check-ins, some regular community building time, some appreciation circles, other restorative practices. If we're not investing in that in our classroom community, then these kind of cycles of harm and healing that we ask our students to engage in with us when somebody says something or uses a, a, a symbol or brings up a difficult topic, we don't get to have those cycles of harm and healing be meaningful if students don't feel like they belong in their classroom and a part of your classroom community. The Confronting White Nationalism in Schools Toolkit has some great examples of talking points white nationalists use to defend their positions. Let's read through them so we can recognize these statements for what they are and start thinking about how to respond. Yeah, let's do it. It's about pride, not prejudice. Racism is over, or another variation on this, Teaching about race is racist. We need to listen to both sides of the issue. Ooh, that's such a sneaky one. Schools must respect parental choice. This is a free speech issue. And probably the number one most commonly uttered phrase on this list, it was just a joke. The toolkit goes into all of these in some detail, but let's hit some of the high points of how to respond in general. What do we do to prevent these ideas from taking up space in our classrooms? That is a really important question. One thing I hear teachers say a lot is they don't want to just let comments go because that normalizes the problematic idea and harms other kids in the class. But they also don't want to silence the student who's defending these ideas and lose the learning opportunity. Here's Jessica again, talking about her experience responding to common defenses and other rhetorical tactics. If you are in the classroom, I think it's important to first assess, is there immediate harm or danger? Obviously, that's our number one 
task is to keep our students safe and there's physical safety and there's emotional safety. Hateful ideologies, they're dangerous in the mainstream, even if they don't lead to physical or, or, or even emotional harms. They're dangerous to your learning community in your classroom and to the school community as a whole. So they have to be addressed. They absolutely have to be addressed. But the full picture of what that looks like doesn't have to all happen in the moment. The most important thing is to make sure that the students around you know that you heard the comment or you saw the avatar or you saw the meme or, you know, you knew what topic a student was bringing up. There's an initial response and there are secondary responses. An initial response could look like, hey, John, that comment you just made doesn't, doesn't follow our community guidelines for the classroom. I actually personally found that found that hurtful. And so I'm guessing some of the other students in the class did. I want to have this conversation. If you could let so-and-so, you know, have the floor to, to speak, we'll, we'll circle back to that. And when you circle back, there can be multiple conversations. Conversation you might have with your whole class. If it matters in your classroom, it should be public because if all the students that heard a comment, for example, don't hear it getting resolved and they don't know that you took it seriously and you want them to know that you take it seriously because this is about your classroom community. Sometimes you might want to hold a student back after class and say, you know, I really want to talk more about that. Um, give students an opportunity to, to share what was happening for them. It might be also a conversation you have with that student and their counselor or that student and their parent. And sometimes there is also just a lot of learning to happen. People are, you know, high schools are diverse because we're bringing students in from different middle schools, different elementary schools that they're feeding into one big high school. And it might be the first time that a young person has been around people with very different opinions or ways of seeing the world than their own family. So there's also an opportunity to, to help that student see the world in a little bit of a different way. Let's look at, quote, this is a free speech issue. If you're a classroom teacher, this interpersonal sphere of influence is also where you can use lesson planning to help students understand, for example, what the First Amendment actually says and how it functions differently in different settings. Because in a lot of instances, people invoke the First Amendment in cases where it really doesn't apply. Exactly. The First Amendment won't protect you from not getting into a college you want because you wrote something anti-Semitic in your admissions essay, or from not getting fired because you posted photos of yourself online wearing a White Lives Matter shirt. Western State Center has written some classroom resources to assist educators in teaching about topics like faulty First Amendment arguments, the history of eugenics, backlash and scapegoating, and how all of these are used to spread hateful ideas. We will link those lessons in the show notes. Okay, what about it was just a joke? I know from experience that one is really hard to respond to without looking like an out-of-touch adult. Yeah, this one is tough. And we didn't mention it last time, but part of the reason it's so important to learn good tools for responding to it was just a joke is that white nationalists very intentionally use humor in their outreach to young people and as a way to quickly spread hateful ideas. And then if someone calls you out for repeating it or reposting it, you can rely on plausible deniability by saying, it was just a joke. Now, if a joke is being made in front of a bunch of students, we want to address it in the moment because students in your class who might be the target of that joke need to know that you have their back. And that could look like appealing to a classroom constitution that you wrote together with your students, 
or talking about the history of the joke and the cost of humor at the expense of other people. You could even just say how the joke personally impacted you. A lot depends on the situation. And we'll link another resource in the show notes that has a whole discussion guide with more suggestions about what to say. But this is another example of where the curriculum can do the lifting for you and help students reach their own conclusions. One of the most creative ways I have seen an educator do this is by inviting students to share their favorite memes in her high school English class and then analyzing those memes as texts. The teacher who developed this lesson is Nora Flanagan, and she's also one of the toolkit authors. She calls this lesson Meme Day. So Meme Day is a day-long lesson I do uh, in an elective class I teach called Experimental Literature. It's kind of a trap I lay out for students to make them think about bigger things without realizing they're thinking about bigger things. Meme Day serves a lot of functions. So what we do, I create a blank doc and I just label it Meme Day at the top. I give them a solid 10 or 15 minutes to just fill this doc with memes. And I do make a note at the beginning, like keep it PG-13, we're a high school, but let's not get crazy. They fill the doc. I just checked and last year's doc was 37 pages long. Uh, I think the year before was 40 pages. Like there's never been a student who doesn't know what to do. Memes are an in-group language. And so being something that high school kids are fluent in and their 40-something-year-old English teacher is completely lost, that's kind of the point. Everybody's got their niche memes. Everybody's got, I mean, there are gamer memes and D&D memes and political memes and memes that depend on me knowing pop stars that I don't know. So that's that whole in-group notion is that in a classroom, especially at a school as diverse as mine, we have so many different potential in-groups in the room together that we're all kind of crossing some terrain to meet each other somewhere else to understand 40 pages of memes. Nora is one of the most skilled educators I've ever met when it comes to finding ways to help her students think critically about news sources, web content, and jokes. And she's not afraid to talk openly about the ways white nationalism and other groups will deliberately use vehicles like memes to garner favor with young people and make their hateful ideologies seem more appealing. It's something they don't realize is depending on racist or misogynistic or transphobic assumptions. And so I'll take a second and say, hang on, can we, can we zoom out for a second and regroup and then look at this from a different angle? This is where having a, a climate of trust in your classroom comes in. My students trust that I'm not trying to make them look racist or misogynistic or transphobic, that we're in this together and that if part of the exercise is decoding these things we see every day on the internet, we all have to assume that there are things we don't know about and don't realize, and then we all learn something and we're in it together. And maybe that's, maybe that's part of why this activity works so well every year is that all of us are coming into it realizing we don't know everything. I love that. I wish I had done meme day in school. I know, me too. Although I actually don't think memes existed when I was in school. So let's recap ways we can counter organized bigotry within our closest sphere of influence. 
we can learn to recognize the common defenses for white nationalism and other anti-democracy ideologies and prepare to address them without giving these ideas more power or airtime. We can set up classroom constitutions and discussion norms with our students that allow us to reference those values and expectations if and when bigoted ideas show up, and especially when they're presented as jokes. We can seek out lessons and other learning opportunities that do the heavy lifting for us by helping students understand the nuances of issues like scapegoating or meme culture. And the last thing I think it's important to say again here is that all of these interventions are going to be much more effective if we have genuine relationships with students based on mutual respect. Here's Jessica again. When we hear our students say hateful things, it's it's hard to be our most level-headed, compassionate selves sometimes. So I remind myself that we're talking to young people who are in great stage of transition and transformation. In fact, most everything about their lives feels upside down. Their brains are making it that way. They're growing and learning at a really significant rate and, and learning to manage their own emotions and to work with other people and sifting through tons of information that previous generations didn't have access to. It's really important for young folks to find a sense of belonging, and they're, they're looking for that with eagerness and uh, effort. We're also in a, living in a culture where teenagers are not respected for their immense contributions. Students can be pushing boundaries for any number of reasons. So in the moment, I think really what you have to lean back on are your values and your school classroom agreements. Okay, let's discuss another tactic anti-democracy groups use to target schools. Attacks on specific initiatives, programs, and teachers. We talked about this quite a bit in episode one. This is a tactic we can help counter within our next sphere of influence. Our coworkers, our professional learning communities, departments, or grade-level teams. Right, and collaborating with coworkers is going to look different depending on the climate of the school and the identity of the educator. People who are targets of anti-democracy groups, particularly LGBTQ plus folks and black and brown educators, know they need to be aware of safety concerns when confronting white nationalism in their schools and communities. Visibility is powerful, but putting yourself out there as an individual without institutional support can place you in a vulnerable position. So educators can build organizational support and move together in order to protect individual safety. That will take some time, particularly if the community is hostile to these ideas. And if we want to move toward institutional change, it's helpful to apply a community organizing lens to this. Can you explain more about that, Ray, and what you mean by community organizing? I think some people might hear that term and immediately think, well, that's not me. I'm not an organizer. For sure. Organizing is the process of building power among a group of people with similar concerns or issues in order to make changes to their community, workplace, school, or other environments. Anyone can be an organizer, and everyone has a role to play. How can someone who has never been involved in organizing start doing this work? Well, the best piece of advice I've ever gotten about organizing at work is to start by focusing on just being a reliable and trustworthy coworker. 
show up on time, follow through on what you say you'll do, help out your coworkers, and work on being someone who people can trust. That principle has served me well over the years. Ah, relationships, the key yet again. And if you have really good relationships with your coworkers, then you can start having one-on-one conversations about how to make your school safer. Definitely. When having one-on-ones with people early on, your goal is to build trust and get to know each other. Ask your coworkers about their concerns, listen to their observations, and provide support. Share stories about your own experiences too, but mostly listen. Over time, as you build trust and a shared understanding, you can invite your coworkers to step up to a higher level of engagement. These invitations should be specific. So let's say invite them to meet with other people, teach a lesson, start a group, or attend a workshop together. Yeah, there are a number of toolkit trainers in our network who do this really skillfully. They might work in environments where there's some hostility toward the work of confronting white nationalism, which is wild, but that's where we are. But they still find ways to share the toolkit and talk about the best practices in more subtle ways that have small, gradual effects. This process of forming relationships with the overarching purpose of creating institutional change is called base building. And as an aside, this is exactly what anti-democracy groups are doing all the time. Yep, bigoted movements are organized. And this is another reason to focus on relationships. Because when an organized movement attacks an individual person, which is happening more and more to LGBTQ plus teachers and especially to women of color working in schools and districts, it's incredibly powerful to have a network who can come together and advocate for that person. If you're already a member of a strong union, this is a natural place to turn to for support. But you don't need a strong union or any union to organize and build that support. Okay, so you've had your one-on-one conversations with colleagues. Maybe you have one or two or more coworkers who feel ready to go beyond talking about the issues. What's next? Well, don't ever stop having those one-on-one conversations. Even if you have a group of folks, you all should continue engaging coworkers in one-on-ones. But you might also be ready to present some department or school-wide ideas. There are some great examples of this in the toolkit. You could create an assessment rubric for credible sources on research projects and ask teachers to adopt them in their departments. You could plan a small training or study group for coworkers who are interested and just want to learn more about these issues. Or you could request a toolkit training from Western State Center as a group. It will really depend on your school climate and needs. But make sure that base building continues as you think about what to do. Ray, I know you have your own story about organizing with coworkers to bring more awareness about anti-democracy movements into your school. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. During the 2020 to 2021 school year, we had the presidential election in November, followed by then-President Trump's coup attempt on January 6th. It was such a stressful period of time. But I found a couple of coworkers who are committed to creating a school environment that could respond to the moment. We planned three sessions to teach our colleagues about anti-democracy movements and brainstorm strategies for protecting our communities. We did this on our own time, but a lot of people joined us. And from these sessions, a larger group formed that wanted to bring this work into different areas of the school, 
Like, for example, having all administrators and eventually all faculty go through confronting white nationalism in schools toolkit training. Our ultimate goal was to have people in all areas of the school develop the skills to protect their communities from bigoted movements. So much brilliance came out of those little sessions about how to protect our community from anti-democracy threats. One of those folks was Eric Henderson Hood, who at the time was a sixth and seventh grade humanities teacher at the school. Let's hear a little bit about Eric's experience. I joined the group because you were really kind about just like inviting me into this group. Some of my interest was around how some of the white boys in my class were gravitating toward memes and humor that was in line with racist kind of language and stuff. Joining that group, I was kind of motivated personally uh, as a teacher, but also motivated as someone that deeply cares about the culture online and having that balanced view that, you know, the internet can be used for good and it can also be used um, for great evil. And so that was kind of my, my motivation behind that was trying to see if there was a way that I could assist people that were doing heavy amounts of research or on the groundwork and meeting with groups that wanted to support that mission of inclusive cultures. As someone that didn't think they had a role to play, I think it's important to realize that small contributions are not nothing. It's helpful when you have other organizers that are willing to invite you into the conversation and to find small ways to do that. I think that's just generally what makes a great movement is when there are lots of small pieces moving. Step one, establishing a friendship before they ask. And so I didn't feel used as like, oh, Eric knows technology and video games. It was you had already established a friendship. We had talked in the halls and we had just commiserated on um, having young kids and commiserated on what was happening at the school. I think, and I think that's a strategy for, you know, ironically, that's a strategy that any group does to create inclusion, which is establishing a friendship and a bond that's not built on a transactional kind of relationship. And so I think that's like so important, like when you're trying to invite people in is learning about who they are as a person, because then your invitation looks different for each person. Ultimately, it sounds like when you're asking people to do something new or if things get really tense at work, you want to be able to ask for support from coworkers you trust and who know that they can trust you. Exactly. Don't be discouraged if you feel like it's not possible to make huge changes from your position right away. If you continue building relationships and talk about the issues facing your coworkers and your school, then you are much more prepared to protect the broader community. And that's true even if you don't have organizing experience. Everyone has a role to play, as we've said, and anyone can organize. Let's hear from Eric again. I would encourage anyone that starts to notice that kids are willing to listen to you or that they're asking you questions. They're interested in what something's about. That's the opportunity to, and not too cliche of a term, to take a stand for things that matter to kids and to take a stand for things that matter to your community. And I, as someone that felt like they contributed very little, there are still like 
a bunch of people working together toward a common goal. And it's not just some giant sweeping change, but it's a slow kind of rise of the tide. Okay, I hope you're feeling inspired by all these different ways you can take this organizing to the next level. Yes, because bigoted groups definitely want to take their organizing to the next level. Recently, we've seen this look like trying to establish a more formal presence in schools and districts, either by running for school board or even pushing for student groups that align with their agendas. Our response should leverage a sphere of influence where we can start to reach across departments, across tiers of leadership and grade level, and even build bridges with other schools and the surrounding community. So if we think of the school or district as a building that needs to be strong enough to withstand, say, a hurricane, we'd look for places where wind and water could get in to try to close those gaps and stabilize the structure. Organizing does the same thing. I love that analogy. It's like strengthening the whole institution so it can withstand attacks from anti-democracy groups. We do that by looking for places to shore up our policies, our value statements, our professional development, and our relationships so hateful ideas can't find a way in. One of my favorite examples of this happened in Chicago not too long ago, where an anti-democracy group called Turning Point USA was trying to establish a student group in a high school there. Isn't Turning Point USA usually active on college campuses? They are, but they have been targeting younger and younger kids for all the same base-building reasons we talked about in Part 1. And while Turning Point pretends to be a young conservatives group, researchers who follow them have found plenty of evidence that their leadership has straight-up anti-Semitic, anti-trans, and anti-feminist agendas. We'll put a few links about this in our show notes. I've also heard they publish a watch list of educators who they perceive to be too, quote-unquote, radical. Yeah, that's true. But fortunately, in this high school, the parents, community groups, and the union responded to Turning Point USA with strong and unambiguous opposition. Because this is a community where organizing has been going on for a long time, the network was able to act quickly and work with the principal to point out why having this group actually violated the stated mission of the school to educate global citizens and create a better world. In the principal's email to families about this issue, he said that the school would never tolerate the formation of any group that does not support these values. And that pretty much squashed it. I love this example. If you've done the work in the more immediate spheres of influence, it allows you to be more effective at the institutional level. Exactly. And to be prepared to resist a common anti-democracy organizing tactic, which is to use the veil of respectability and youth development as a kind of Trojan horse to bring hateful ideas into the school. Let's look at another example of a district that has taken steps to strengthen itself against the threat of organized bigotry. This one comes from one of our toolkit trainers named Keisha Smith-Carrington. Here she is explaining how she was able to grow her influence from the personal sphere to the institutional sphere. I began in 97 as a teacher assistant in a public school district and really seeing firsthand the variability with which students presented. So my questions about what was going on in education 
and what was my role really began then. And when I became a classroom teacher in my own classroom, I, you know, really understood, especially because I am a Black woman, which means I was a Black girl when I went to school. I really understood that there was a need to make sure that I included the cultures of the students, the parents and families of the students, and really attended to the identities of the children who showed up in my classroom. So moving forward, I worked at state level and I got to see then systemic issues up close and personal, some of which I'd experienced, but some that I really didn't know existed. And so all of this really propelled my journey into how do we address the systems that are resulting in harm to children. And so moving into my current work environment is very clear, actually one of the most clear experiences of just how all of the systemic pieces come together. And in this space, the district was asking questions, but some of the answers to those questions weren't comfortable. And we saw what happened nationally when people were not comfortable and began to rage against some of the realities of the changing faces of our nation and perceived threats to the America that they knew and loved. And so um, in my space, I knew that it was more than just the more typical ways of approaching and resisting that needed to happen. It became clear more than ever before, the threat to democracy and the tie of that threat to what was happening in education. And thankfully, I found out about confronting white nationalism in schools, toolkit training opportunity, and really began to understand the role that white nationalism plays versus white supremacy. I was more familiar with white supremacy. And also to understand more deeply than ever before, the threat to our democracy. Keisha started out looking for small, subtle ways to introduce the toolkit. Over time, she was able to gain more support for the work. Over the past almost two years now of having gone through that toolkit training, a lot of the work at the institutional level for me has been really making sure that any of the professional development I'm responsible for is really addressing the issues that are happening, the different forms of oppression, calling out white supremacy where necessary, showing the ties to white nationalism. What started in the summer of 20 in my district in a more intense way was doing the work of having people begin to consider their own identities, the identities of our populations of students and families beginning to confront biases and really do that self-work that's needed. However, a lot of that was not really going to the level of calling it out the way it needed to be called out. It was much more palatable. It's always more palatable not to say things like white nationalism, even white supremacy, although we did do that in that level of equity training, but really 
to get to the heart of it and the threat to democracy, especially in a space where, you know, a lot of times educators can fall back on the comfort of saying, you know, there shouldn't be politics in education or, you know, I try to remain neutral. And so we started bringing in the truths about the fact that every choice you make is political. You know, our field is driven by politics, whether it be the governor and state board members who are determining the standards that we have, the positions, the funding, what mandates we have, all of it is political. And so it, it again, had to go beyond just trying to convince colleagues or trying to convince other adults in the school community. It, it really had to go into um, becoming part of the way we functioned as an institution. Two years in, when the opportunity presented itself, Keisha proposed a six-part training program based on the toolkit and how it supports the district-wide goal of creating schools where all students belong. Now there are educators at every grade level promoting the best practices within their own spheres of influence. And Keisha herself is working with district leadership to continue to advocate for policy change at the district level. One of the first steps of that was to work with some other colleagues to develop that equity module training that we have in the district. The next step of that was to really home in on the fact that it was more than just this six-hour experience that was needed, but we really needed to get deeper, be more targeted, and call out the threat to democracy. And in a district that was going through a lot of transition at top leadership levels, it became a question of how to advocate, to whom to advocate, who would still be here to support, and also how to really make it clear that this needed to be an imperative. I think a lot of the more effective approaches have been to tie the moral imperative aspect of it to what was part of edu jargon or edu focus during any given time. Most recently with the pandemic and the quote racial reckoning, you know, that really allowed a lot more things to be said in more transparent ways. So to actually talk about white supremacy, to talk about structural racism, and the harms that have been done in schools, to actually talk about how all of these things are a threat to our democracy because of what happened in our 2020 election in particular. Those things have become more palatable to say, but, it, but it's still not easy. So I think a lot of the challenge to have a, a really coherent focus is really working to figure out, okay, if we can't do the whole thing by name, how do we then bring in pieces to shore up the gaps between what we currently have and what we really need to have? And so working to consistently put that question forward, find ways to integrate the work into the professional learning that could be supported, the curriculum that could be supported. But a lot of it is really about being resilient, being focused, and understanding the moral imperative is that this is the work to do. This is making good trouble, as John Lewis would say. 
And so it's not about changing the institution overnight, but it's about always moving forward and continuing to drive towards justice within our school walls and beyond. So let's recap. We know that bigoted groups are good at using rhetoric to spread their messages, usually relying on bad faith arguments, dog whistles, and false equivalency. Yes, and within our personal spheres of influence, we can learn how to respond to those statements without giving them airtime or getting into a power struggle and use our relationships to leverage learning opportunities. We talked about how bigoted groups might target a particular curriculum or initiative or even a person for promoting ideas they see as counter to their agenda. And within our professional sphere of influence, we can help by networking to share resources and talking points and showing up to support each other, even organizing to make small changes that can start shifting the culture. And we talked about the tactic of trying to establish a formal presence in a school through forming a club like Turning Point USA. Yes, and with sustained work over time, We can extend our sphere of influence to the school or even the district level and establish clear policies, professional development opportunities, and value statements that allow our institutions to fulfill their missions and support our inclusive democracy. And we want to make it really clear that everyone involved in the life of a school has a unique perspective and sphere of influence. That includes teachers, staff, students, and caregivers. And even if you aren't seeing bigoted organizing at your school now, this work is still important. Your community will have the best opportunity to stay safe if you stay ready. And not all change is visible. Even if you don't see it right away, people hear what you have to say, and they will know they can come to you when they need information or support. You may never know the influence you're having, but that doesn't mean you're not having influence. Join us for part three in this series, when we're going to look at how we can extend this work into our homes and communities outside of school, including with our kids who love to play video games. Schooling Bigotry was produced by Western State Center, with sound engineering by Square Lightning Communications and Design and Jack Straw Cultural Center. To download the Confronting White Nationalism in Schools toolkit, visit westernstatecenter.org schools. And if you have an experience or question you'd like to share with our team, you can send us an email at info at wscpdx.org. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more resources and information on the topics we discussed in this episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time.